Well, in the momentous hour when Nazism was emerging, Adolf Hitler spoke to a group of people in a Munich beer cellar. And his words were harsh and they were potent and inflamed with hate and cruelty and were mirrored on the hardened faces of the evil group to which he spoke. It wasn't very long after that event that changed that the, the charged words of this depraved tyrant engulfed the whole world in a devastating war of hatred and incomprehensible cruelty. So an artist has portrayed that scene of that beer seller speech, putting to canvas the facial reactions of the gathering of intent listeners as they allowed themselves to become immersed in Adolf Hitler's inflammatory words. The title of that painting, believe it or not, is In the Beginning Was the Word. The irony is not easily missed. The same declaration opens the timeless gospel of the apostle John who declared that it was by the definitive word, the very being of God, Jesus Christ himself, that all life, spiritual and physical alike, came into existence by a mere utterance. What a contrast of those two things. The glory of life or the horror of death can be traced back to the concept of an uttered word. As the scripture reminds us, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The beginning of any horrendous or honorable event, either of those two, can usually be traced back to the utterance of words. Words are extremely powerful and undeniably revealing. There's no getting around the biblical fact that our words reveal our hearts. Last time we were together, I closed my talk by sharing with you the words of a historically renowned man of philosophical insight, Socrates, who once said to his young student, speak, friend, that I may see thee. The profundity of that statement is arresting to us. The old-time down-home preacher Vance Havner once quipped something different, but pretty much the same thing when he said, the old country doctor of my boyhood days always began his examination of me by saying this, let me see your tongue, stick out your tongue. And he finished that up with, it is a good way to start the examination of anybody. The truth rings clear that the quality of our words indicates the condition of our hearts. Bitter water comes from a bitter fountain. Therefore, worthless conversation is a misrepresentation of Christianity, of true Christianity. James sums it up in no roundabout fashion in this chapter, chapter 3. Like a piano dropped from a fourth-story window, James's words in chapter 1, verse 26, brings the truth down to earth with a ring that rattles our insides. He said, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Did you get that? Worthless means of no account. It means empty. In other words, an uncontrolled tongue reveals an unrestrained heart, a heart that is not controlled by God. So what's the cure? Surrender your heart and then watch your mouth. I left you last time 
that we were in James with a prayer of practical and spiritual necessity from Psalm 141, verses 3 and 4, which says, Set a guard over my lips, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing. And we need that prayer every day. Why? Because without divine assistance, we cannot tame the tyrant from hell, our tongue. Now, those sound like strong words, but they're not my words. They're James's words, guided by the Holy Spirit. Look at James chapter 3 with me, James chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets the fire, sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. I'm going to stop right there for now. An uncontrolled tongue reveals an unrestrained heart, says James. Therefore, we need to understand how to get control over that tongue. James's whole point in this passage, even though he doesn't come right out and literally say it, is simply this, to drive home the importance of allowing the Holy Spirit to control your tongue and your speech. And he hammers that point home by approaching this topic from three different but very extraordinarily effective directions. And the first angle that he attacks this thing from is that he grabs our attention with the very strikingly familiar in verses three and four. He talks about, he uses two common illustrations of the day, making no excuses as he expresses the tremendous power of little things. He talks about the horse and the bridle, first of all, in verse 3. Notice that. If we put the, if the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Interesting, isn't it? Elaborating on what he unveils in verse 2, he makes his point that if a man or a woman can effectively control his speech, his tongue, he or she can, in essence, direct something larger in scope than that, his entire body and prevent it from being exploited by sin. A tiny bit in the mouth of a horse, much greater in size, controls the entire horse. Pretty simple. The bridle doesn't just control the mouth or even the head of the horse, but as any rider knows, it will secure the obedience of the entire animal. The point is that the control must be applied to the right place in order to be effective. Did you get that? Control needs to be applied to the right place in order to be effective. It's not achieved by accident. It is intentional. Who would ever think that you could control the horse by putting a bridle under his tail? 
I don't think it works. It wouldn't be very effective in controlling anything except the guarantee of pitching yourself headlong into the ditch. But friends, you and I go through all kinds of rituals and routines trying to control our lives, but one of the first and most effective places we need to be harnessed is in our speech, which emanates from where? The heart. If the tongue is under control, it means the heart is under control. Get control over your tongue and you'll effectively be able to direct the rest of your body. And the control of your tongue comes from who's controlling your heart. Now, the second image that he uses is even more picturesque. He talks about the ship and the rudder in verse 4. And that ships so great that are driven by strong winds can be directed by a very small rudder by comparison, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So this picture of a huge ship being driven by incredible power of a stiff, strong wind, which no man control, is what James is really highlighting here, yet by the use of a small rudder, by comparison, you can direct that ship anywhere the pilot's inclinations take him. Anyone who has commanded the rudder determines the course of the ship. Amen? Even our own familiar life experiences testify to our control over the enormous by the minute. If we do it with horses and ships of titanic proportions, shouldn't we able to do it? Shouldn't we be able to do it with our own lives? By the use of the familiar, again, James begins to unfold the reality of what's foreign to us. Tongue control is absolutely foreign to the majority of us. When it comes to our words, we're out of control. It is at this crucial point in life that we all trip up. We desperately need the Lord's help. How often do you actually pause before you speak and think about the impact that your words are going to have in the grand scheme of things? Do we even realize what James is saying here? The tongue, small as it may be, has the power to direct the destinies of people's lives. Layman Strauss says that one word of spiritual counsel, compassion, or comfort can be used to guide a troubled soul to safe harbor. Or, as history indicates, can be used to inflame an entire society toward hatred. Curtis Vaughn accurately and eloquently summarized it. He said, it can sway men to violence or it can move them to noble actions. It can instruct the ignorant, encourage the dejected, comfort the sorrowing, soothe the dying, or it can crush the human spirit, destroy reputations, spread distrust and hate, and bring nations to the brink of war. That's how much power the tongue has. And so moving from the strikingly familiar, James next, James next unloads on us the sizzling facts in verses 5 and 6. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a, a small fire. Here are the cold hard facts, James says, the searing, sizzling truth about our toxic 
tyrannical tongue. First of all, he says, it's conceited. It's conceited. It boasts of great things. It makes great claims for such a small member. Big talk, yet the claims are real. The word James uses here does not indicate an empty boast, but of prideful, conceited haughtiness of its own self-importance. He views the tongue as an organ of speech having its own personality and power. It's almost as if it had a mind of its own, so to speak, and an inflated one at that. It arrogantly declares its own great exploits. Big talk, again, from such a small member. Yet world-changing and life-altering events have always been the result of the tongue which has been allowed to run amok. See, ideas that are expressed by the tongue are the basis for human history. Again, James chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Let me, let me read it to you out of the message and see if this brings some color to it. Eugene Peterson paraphrases like this. A word out of your mouth may seem of no account, but it can accomplish nearly anything or destroy it. It only takes a spark, remember, to set off a forest fire. A careless or wrongly placed word out of your mouth can do that. By our speech, we can ruin the world, turn harmony to chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke and go up in smoke with it. Smoke right from the pit of hell. That's the message, translation of those, a paraphrase of those two verses. So it's conceited. James says it's also contemptuous. James says, see how great, uh, it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Look at the damage one small spark can cause, James says. One fiery misdirected word can ignite a raging fire that can ravage and destroy. This is by far James's greatest word picture and I believe the most graphic. What's more destructive than a fire? In 1953, a pan of rice boiled over onto a charcoal stove at a small home in Korea. In less than 24 hours, almost 3,000 buildings were completely destroyed within an area covering one square mile from one pan of rice that boiled over. The tongue is a small thing, James says, but what enormous damage it can do. A tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. You and I know just how true his words are, don't we? In the heat of an argument with your spouse, with your children, or with a friend, or even with an enemy, you know you shouldn't say the words. They're rolling around in the back of your mind. And you're doing everything in your power to stop yourself. But you just can't stop yourself from letting an angry, cutting word spew forth. And it hurts. And sometimes it cuts that person deeper than you could ever have imagined. And in the end, you wish you had never spoken the words because you always pay the consequences for it, don't you? And sometimes the consequences last an entire lifetime. I've heard of fathers and daughters, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and many others who have refused to speak to each other for 5, 10, 15, 20 years or more 
And the whole breakdown began with a few careless words that sparked an entire lifetime of emotional bitterness and relational pain. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says in Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And in Proverbs 17.14, Solomon writes, the beginning of strife is like the letting out of water, so abandon the argument before it breaks out. See, instead of letting letting words rip, we ought to learn to let others' comments roll. Roll right off our backs. And that's difficult. But we need to do it because our tongue, your tongue and my tongue, is a destructive fire, James says. It's conceited, it's contemptuous. Thirdly, it's consuming, verse 6 says. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. Nothing stronger was ever said about the tongue, suggests one commentator. This is a devastating portrait. Every stroke of James' pen in this section reveals a little more about the hideous picture. Fire is more than adequate of a metaphor for the nature of the tongue. When left uncontrolled, or actually when we try to control it even, without the help of the Holy Spirit... It consumes everything combustible in its path. The tongue is a fire. Proverbs 16, 27 says, A worthless man digs up evil while his words are like a scorching fire. In Proverbs 26, verse 18, Just as damaging as a madman shooting a lethal weapon is someone who lies to a friend and then says, I was only joking. Fire goes out for lack of fuel and quarrels disappear when gossip stops. A quarrelsome person starts fights as easily as hot embers lighting charcoal or fire lights wood. That's Proverbs 26, 18 to 21. Did you all get one of these when you came in? Some of you have this, have some left over from years ago when I preached on this text, I told you. But this is a good tool to have. It's got to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, otherwise this tool will do nothing. Right? Here are the sizzling facts about your tongue and mine. It's conceited, it's contemptuous, it's consuming. And then James says, it's also corrupt. It's corrupt. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. The very world of iniquity, he says. As one man put it bluntly, when he said there are few sins that people commit in which the tongue is not involved. It is a microcosm of the world of evil, James says. Think about it. It lies. It slanders. It kindles hatred. It incites lust. It causes division, discord, distrust, and it blasphemes. It is entirely inclined to evil short of the empowering grace of God. This is not a pretty picture, is it? And it gives evidence of the depraved and corrupt heart that we have and why we need Jesus Christ to save us. What proceeds out of the man, Jesus said in Matthew 15, 11, is what defiles him, Jesus said, because it comes from a heart which is already defiled. The Pharisees were worried about what they were putting into their mouths. Jesus said, you ought to be worried about what's coming out of your mouth. 
An uncontrolled tongue reveals an unrestrained heart. James also says it's contaminating. Verse 6 again. Set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. It morally defiles the entire body. The word here means to stain or to spot, literally to soil and contaminate. The tongue can blemish a person's entire character and personality. We see that every single day in the news, don't we? We have people in leadership positions in our country that can't control their tongue. Or in this case, it's fingers. Texting, it's the same thing. It issues forth from the heart. James points out that the tongue occupies the distinct place among our physical makeup that can morally contaminate our entire being if it's not checked and expose our inner sin-stained condition. Like a moral leprosy, it can influence every one of our other physical members and defile all of our actions. A loose tongue is usually followed by a loose life. James goes on to say, it's reach is comprehensive. Again, verse 6. Sets on fire the course of our life. That's pretty encompassing, isn't it? Literally, the phrase translates as the wheel of birth and refers to the course of our existence throughout our lives. In other words... James is saying an uncontrolled tongue kindles the most malignant and destructive fires in life and reaps lifelong consequences. Not only is the tongue conceited, not only is it contemptuous, consuming, corrupt, contaminating, and comprehensive in its reach, but ultimately, James says, it's combustible. Verse 6 again, the very last part of the verse. It is set on fire. What's it say? By hell. Those are some heavy words. Here is the bottom line on where the sins of the tongue originate from. It is set on fire by hell itself. James could not have used a more descriptive word to make his point here. The word hell here in the Greek is the word Gehenna. The only other place that that is used is in the Synoptic Gospels. For those of you who want to know what the Synoptic Gospels are, it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Gehenim, which refers to the Old Testament Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, which you find in Joshua and in Jeremiah. This valley was located just southeast of Jerusalem, and in the days of wicked King Ahaz and Manasseh, this was the place where human sacrifices were offered to the pagan god Moloch. Idolatrous Jews burned their children to these false deities. You find that in 2 Chronicles 28. Until the time of good King Josiah, when he brought a revival to the nation and destroyed that evil practice. After Josiah's time and on into James's day, the area was used as the dumping ground for the city of Jerusalem. So into that place... Refuse and the bodies of criminals which weren't buried, animal carcasses and all kinds of other rubbish and filth were thrown there from the city. 
It was a place of total defilement where fires were continually burning, as you can well imagine. And Jesus described Gehenna or hell as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And when he described hell, he was giving them the word picture of Gehenna, that place outside of Jerusalem where the fires were always burning. Not surprisingly, Gehenna became the quintessential image depicting the eternal punishment of hell and the lake of fire into which all who refuse the offer of Christ's salvation will be cast according to Jesus in the Gospels. So here, James is not looking so much as hell is the place of punishment as much as he is the eventual eternal dwelling place of the devil and his angels. In other words, And all of that explanation is to say that what James is saying here is that our tongues are all too easily controlled by Satan. Set on fire by Gehenna. Did you ever think about your tongue that way? Or the use of your tongue that way? You see, our mouths can readily become a tool of the devil in spreading the fire of hell. That's what James is saying. You believe that? Peter learned the hard way. In Matthew chapter 16. Turn there for a moment. Matthew chapter 16. Verse 15. You know this text, if you've been around the Bible very long, it's it's Peter's greatest statement about the lordship of Christ. So they're in the, Caesarea, the district of Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They asked them, say, John the Baptist, Elijah, the others, Jeremiah. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? And what is Simon Peter? He jumps right in there and he makes this definitive statement that's become classic and iconic. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you, Peter, you are rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail or overpower it. I'm gonna give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. So so Jesus is praising Peter for making this incredible statement out of his mouth his tongue set on fire by the Holy Spirit, by the Father in heaven, right? What happens two seconds later? Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised upon the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, who? Satan. For you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. One minute, Peter's tongue is the tool of the Holy Spirit. The next minute, it's the tool of Satan. And it happens to you and me all the time, doesn't it? 
On the flip side, however, an intriguing and instructive incident occurs in Acts chapter 2. We're not going to look at it, but as one commentator points out, as the disciples waited prayerfully in the upper room, their tongues were set on fire by the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak as the Spirit gave them utterance. The outcome was that thousands of souls came to faith in Christ because of that. So here's the deal. Your tongue, my tongue, will be set on fire, folks. It will either be controlled by the flame of the Holy Spirit or the fire of hell. Which will it be for you? You choose. Proverbs 18 in verse 7 says, A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Been snared by your tongue lately? On a windswept hill in an English country churchyard stands a drab gray slate tombstone. The faint etchings of an epitaph read this, like this. Beneath this stone, a lump of clay lies Isabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. When will we learn to hold ours? On the day of our death? Because the quality of our words indicates the condition of our hearts, James says. What's the condition of your heart this morning is the critical issue. Is it occupied by the indwelling spirit of God or is it full of the world? Is it full of your fleshly desires or is it full of the manipulation of the evil one? In any given moment, whatever fills your heart will usually fuel your tongue. And the undeniable fact is you can't utterly control your tongue. It's impossible. You must surrender control to the Holy Spirit of God or you have no chance of taming it. Not only has James pointed that out by using what is strikingly familiar to us and by outlining the sizzling facts, but finally he pulls himself into the mix by willingly admitting from his own personal experience the standing frustration that he has in verse 7. Look at what it says. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. With it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does the fountain send forth from it the same opening, both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. That's the message up behind me. I like the way it reads. This is scary. You can tame a tiger, but you can't tame a tongue. It's never been done. The tongue runs wild, a wanton killer. With our tongues, we bless God our Father. And with the same tongues, we curse the very men and women who are made in his image. Curses and blessings out of the same mouth. My friends, this can't go on. I like the way he put it. So we're strong-armed by, this, by the power of this thing called the tongue. Mankind has displayed an absolute amazing capacity to tame the animal kingdom, haven't we? But we can't subdue this little thing right here. It's incredible what some people have trained animals to do. 
On the other hand, James isn't making a wooden statement here that we've been able to domesticate every single kind of animal in existence. What he's doing is implying that we have the ability to bring under control and dominate the animal kingdom because God gave us that authority. In Psalm 8, he says, the psalmist says, we've been given the dominion over the works of our hands. You put all things under our feet, the animal kingdom, the sheep, oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea. But while we can train a 16-foot whale weighing 34,000 pounds to jump out of a water tank, tap a beach ball into a crowd with its nose, we cannot keep our tongues in check. Mary Bushy, who many of you remember here, used to say that the reason that a dog has so many friends is because he wags his tail instead of his tongue. And when James says we cannot do it here in this text, he means it. He says it with force. The phrase no one can tame literally means that not one single person, no one has the intrinsic ability in and of themselves or power to restrain his tongue at all times. It's amazing and frustrating. You can't do it. I can't do it. Not on our own strength. Sooner or later, no matter how hard I try, I'm going to slip. It requires a power that's way beyond what we possess in and of ourselves. Something bigger than us. Something out of this world. It requires something more penetrating than the, this stick or Stacy's swear jar. It's going to take the power of God himself. Why? For two reasons. He says in verse 8, because it's a restless evil and it's full of deadly poison. Psalm 140, verse 3 says, their tongues are like deadly snakes. Their words are like a cobra's poison. Romans chapter 3, verse 13 says, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps or cobras is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. He's very serious here, isn't he? Remember that tabloid in the old days, some years ago now? Killer bug ate my face. Remember that? These, these stories of, it was a bacteria in Gloucestershire, England, with invasive strep A, which is not the same as strep throat. Takes hold in a victim's body. Necrotizing fasciitis, it's called, I guess, in the medical field which means that the flesh starts to die at an incredible rate of several inches per hour. Meanwhile, toxic shock can set in, shutting down organs and eventually causing death. Is there anything that is comparable to that? Yeah, the tongue. That's what James says. Nothing can so quickly infect and eat away the body of Christ as sins of the tongue. Gossip, slander, criticism, bad reports, you name it. That's why Paul writes so emphatically that we are to use words that are worthwhile and not worthless. A lot of problems in the church would disappear if we talk to each other instead of about each other. Huh? Ephesians chapter 4. And then we're going to wind this down. Let's wrap it up. Ephesians 4, verse 29. Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, 
But only such a word as is good for edification, the building up of the body, okay? According to the need of the moment, in other words, just don't spew forth stuff. Make sure that there's a need so that it will give grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. We all know what what those venomous words, those unwholesome words are. We don't need to list them all. But Paul says... Don't speak those kinds of words. Speak rather wholesome words, worthwhile words, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in the right circumstance. Encourage people. Sometimes your encouraging word for somebody may just save their life. Remember this, if you don't remember anything else out of this sermon, is that every word we speak impacts someone's life either negatively or positively. And it's evidence of a heart that is controlled by the Spirit. If you speak positively, edifying words that point people to Jesus. Incredible ministry, this ministry of words. Maybe you know somebody that needs a word of encouragement right now. Why not give it to them? I was going to include some three-by-five cards in your bulletin. I didn't have time to get them in there this morning, but write the note. Send the text. Send the card. Do it face-to-face. That's even better. I think we got guys in the church that send texts every morning to other guys in the church of words of encouragement. It's great. See, I know of only one person who can effectively control the power of the tongue. The Holy Spirit. So ask him to do that. James says when we try to do it on our own, we're going to be frustrated into oblivion. We can't be blessing people out of one side of our mouth and cursing people out of the other. You can't you can't bless somebody on some Sunday in church and then turn around on Monday and badmouth them. James says that's contradictory. Right? What's he say? It should not be happening. A fountain doesn't send forth from the same opening both fresh and bitter water. The Holy Spirit's not doing that. close with this incident that happened to actually Jim Simbola wrote about it. Jim Simbola was a pastor of a church in New York, huge church in New York, Brooklyn Tabernacle. And he wrote a book a while back called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And in that book, he said one Sunday about 20 years ago, back in our days when they met in the YMCA, they're one of the biggest churches in New York City now, but they used to meet in the YMCA. I said something impromptu while receiving new members into the church that has stuck with us ever since. He said, people were standing in a row across the front before me, and as I spoke, the Holy Spirit seemed to prompt me to add this, a quote. 
And now I charge you, as pastor of this church, imagine if we did this every time we had members come in, that if you ever hear another member speak an unkind word of criticism or slander against anyone, myself, another pastor, an usher, a choir member, or anyone else, you have authority to stop that person in mid-sentence and say, excuse me, who hurt you? Who ignored you? Who slighted you? Was it Pastor Simula? Well, let's go to his office right now. He will get on his knees and apologize to you, and then we'll pray together so God can restore peace to this body. But we will not let you talk critically about people who are not present to defend themselves. New members, he said, please understand that I am entirely serious about this. I want you to help resolve this kind of thing immediately. And meanwhile, know this, if you are ever the one doing the loose talking, we will confront you, unquote. To this very day, every time he wrote that we receive new members, I say much the same thing. It is always a solemn moment. And that is because I know what most easily destroys churches. It's not crack cocaine. It's not government oppression. It's not even a lack of funds. Rather, it is gossip and slander that grieves the Holy Spirit of God. My brothers and sisters, let me ask you this question as we close because James abruptly ends this segment. He doesn't wrap it up with sweet words. He just abruptly ends it and moves on to the next thing, which is kind of related. But I want to leave you with these two penetrating questions, personal questions. Take some time this week and think about your conversations over the last few months, maybe the last year, last couple days. Have your words come forth as a fountain of life or the poison of cobras? And the second question is what would Jesus have to say? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are all in desperate need of your grace and mercy when it comes to the sins of the tongue. Not one of us is immune. Not one of us is pure. And yet, Jesus, you went to the cross for sins such as these, among many others. And so we humble ourselves before you, our Father, and confess that we have indeed sinned against you. And we thrust ourselves at the foot of your cross, asking you to pour out your forgiveness upon us. Even as Isaiah bowed down before you and fell on his face and said, oh, woe is me when he saw you, that I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Lord, would you take the coal, touch it to our lips and our tongues, and cleanse and heal us that we may speak wholesome words to one another and in prayer to you. For Jesus' sake, I ask it. For the sake of your bride, 
Amen.